within a, uh, within a few decades of the ascension of Jesus Christ, when Jesus ascended into heaven, within a few decades of that, many of his closest friends began to die. All but two of his original disciples, in fact, were martyred. One of them, legend has it, hung himself, um, and the other lived to a ripe old age, and we're actually probably reading his account as we talk about the Gospel of John. Early on, there wasn't really any need to write things down. The friends of Jesus were alive. These people that had walked with him for, for a couple of years, they were around and they were traveling and they were speaking and they were sharing in crowds of people what they had seen and what he had said and what he did and who he is. But when they began to die off, I, suspect, I mean, I, I have to imagine, I invite you all to imagine, a, a kind of a panic must have set in when the closest friends of Jesus began to be killed off one by one and things weren't written down. Jesus hadn't come back yet in the way that he said he would. And of course, if I'm in that community, we want to remember and continue to learn and share what Jesus taught and what he did. And so at the very least, by the mid-60s, some 30 years after Jesus' ascension, lots of accounts of Jesus' life were being written down. Here, here one, uh, will you put up that Luke passage real quick for me? Um, Tyler, thanks. Um, and as much as um, this is the, the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, this is literally how it starts. Just open up your Bible, Luke chapter 1, right? Uh, and as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write to you an orderly account, or to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that's a, 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 probably a friend, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Early on, Luke tells us the task of writing down the narrative of Christ's life was the work of many. The story spread and people recounted and poured over these narratives. So much so that by the time Luke does it, he's, he's probably got at his disposal a number of other ones, and he's at least aware of the fact that many have already undertaken this task to try to do this, probably because the apostles are dying off, and we need to take account of their stories. One really, really late narrative from the Gospel of John, which we'll be looking at, is, a ve is very different from the other narratives that we still have. Each of the narratives differ, of course. The gospel accounts from Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all differ from one another. Mark is really, really brief. He gets to the point, a lot of people, it's their favorite because he's brief, and I like that. Uh, he actually begins, like the opening line of Mark is, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Boom. And he goes. It, it ends, and it, 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 uh, if your Bible, your Bible is a little complicated right now uh, because there's this bracketed section at the end of Mark, probably. But Mark actually ends very truncated with fear, too. Like, it, it starts abruptly and ends pretty abruptly in the original text. And you know right from the start what he's telling you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. He's, going to, he's beginning to tell you a story. There's a beginning, which implies there's some kind of end somewhere, and Whatever is between that would be a middle, I suppose, right? That he's going to tell you some kind of narrative of the good news. Matthew and Luke both begin their, their gospel accounts with birth narratives. And they work through that to the end, largely speaking, the end of the disciples' time with Jesus on earth. 
And, and though they differ, they really do. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very, very different accounts. They read different. They use slightly different language. They're different lengths. They tell some different stories. There's a lot of overlapping ones, but there's some different ones. Though they tell very different accounts, they really serve as complementary narratives with far more similarities than differences. If that bothers you or something, just compare any one of them to any other piece of writing in the first, I don't know, the last 500 years of the Roman Empire. Like, they share so much more similarities than differences. It's unbelievable. In fact, they're, they're collectively called, if you haven't heard this, the Synoptic Gospels. And if I were to ask you to give me um, uh, a synopsis of some movie that you saw over the weekend, you would probably know that I'm asking you to give me a general summary. Synopsis. It's the same sort of root there as synoptic. The synoptic gospels together provide a general summary of what Christians called the good news or the gospel. Okay? The gospel according to John does something a little different, but it's actually a little more different than the other three are different than each other. Rather than being an orderly narrative of the gospel or an orderly narrative of the life of Christ, John has a very specific purpose. And he marshals all of his memory and all of the stories of Christ to leverage that purpose. And we don't have to guess what it is. It's, this is not some PhD came up with some really, really interesting idea. And now it's just the, the, the largely suggested, you know, consensus idea now. We don't have to guess like that. This John, who is very likely, very likely the very young teenage apostle in the gospel accounts, the brother of James, the son of Zebedee, the friend of Peter's, the disciple Jesus loved, this one who saw it all firsthand and lived to a very old age, 90s probably, to tell the tale. He tells us the purpose of the Gospel of John. Would you put up John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31? If you have your Bibles, I highly recommend that you open them to, to the Gospel of John. We'll be looking at chapter 1 mostly tonight. But listen to this from the end of John 20, 30-31. It's 2,000 years later, so I'm assuming you're not going to be hurt that I'm jumping to the end. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He means the, the Gospel of John, the, the thing we call the Gospel of John. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So the synoptic gospels, those other three, they each describe almost three times the amount of miracles or signs in each gospel as John does. Where they might be hitting around 20 each in terms of specific miracles. Like there's, there's all these times where it's like Jesus didn't really do anything special except for like cast out a bunch of demons and heal a bunch of people. That doesn't count as a miracle, I guess, because it's like lumped all together or something. Um, it was so unimpressive that evening. Um, but there are these other times where, 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 where he's walking on water and he calms the, you know, the wind and the storms and that kind of thing. And it's th these miracles are specifically pointed out. He raises this man's uh, child to life. You know, miracles that are, that are highlighted and, and pointed out. Well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have, you know, somewhere around 20 each. John has seven. He has seven. And later, John would say, right after this, he would say that if everything Jesus did was written down, all of the libraries of the world could not contain what was written. His attempt at poetry, I assume. But the author says that the ones that were written down here are for a really specific purpose. That you might believe. 
This is why I'm writing. I'm not writing to you, oh dear Theophilus, in order to make an orderly account of everything that's taken place. That's not it. I have written what I've written here specifically that you might believe. And belief, and you'll hear me say this a ton, I think, because of the way belief is used in our culture. It's not just intellectual agreement. It's not nodding your head to something. To them, to the, to the or people who originally read this, Belief to them meant commitment. It meant risk. If you want evidence of this, it's, you aren't going to get it in English, I guess, but, but if you go to John chapter 2, there's this, there's this moment where our English Bibles say that Jesus did not give himself over to or he did not um, entrust himself to them, to these people that he was encountering right there. That's the same word. Jesus didn't give himself to. He didn't entrust himself to. The word belief for these people meant something like that. It, it, it wasn't less than intellectual agreement. Surely it was that. But more. It, it's stepping on, standing on, entrusting my life to and with. John is hoping that you would, as a reader of his gospel account, entrust yourself and commit yourself. And that belief that entrusting is not generic. It's not generic. Sometimes, you know, Christians sometimes are called believers or something and that's fine, whatever. I'm not like picking on that. But it doesn't actually say what anybody believes. True, I mean, truly, like you just, uh, in Santa Claus, you know, I mean, like it could be anything. We don't articulate that enough. And I want to be very clear here. John is not leaving this open-ended. Matter of fact, he leaves very little open-ended about what he's arguing here. He wants our belief to be very, very specific. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Risk, commit, and trust yourself to the reality that Jesus is the very Son of God, the very one sent for us and more. Because his desire doesn't stop there, that you might have life. Ultimately, what John's wanting is for his readers to have life. That in Christ Jesus, you would have life. That's his ultimate hope. That we would have life by entrusting ourselves to the Jesus, to Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God. That's his purpose. That's what he's hoping is happening as he's articulating his account. And what I want to do tonight is I, I want to look at his prologue. I want to look at the very beginning of his gospel with you, and I want you to read it with me. We're going to read it through. It's really big language. It's sort of people have argued like crazy over whether that's poetry or not because there's, there's these specific orders to it, but then there's like parenthetical statements in it, and nobody puts parentheses in poems, and that really messes up things. And so people can't decide exactly what it is. It's at the very least beautiful, sweeping language. And, and it might be a little confusing. And I want to tell you why at least it might be confusing or mysterious or seem to be biting off more than it can chew. What John's about to do in eight, in, uh, for us, which is 18 verses, is he's about to tell you what he's going to show you for the whole rest of the gospel account. So he's going to introduce stuff that, quite frankly, if you're around this semester, we're going to be exploring for the rest of the semester these ideas. So we're going to read through this once. I'm going to go back through, and we're going to like pick apart a couple of things, introduce some ideas, tease out a couple thoughts. I'm probably going to leave you with more questions and answers about some of these things. And that's, uh, that's okay. I'm, I'm hoping that your New Year's resolution sticks and you'll be around week 13 uh, or whatever that is. Um, but let's read John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So open up your Bibles or you can look on the screen too, I guess. Um, John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about that light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. Would you go back to the beginning of that? We're going to walk through that a little bit. John 1, 1 through 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do you know, does anybody in this room know what any Israelite would have thought of, or what, th- what would this have reminded them of? The moment these words that came across their mind. Anybody know? In the beginning. Anybody know? Genesis, Genesis, Genesis. Uh, would you have that Genesis passage? Would you put that up? Just, I want, for any of you that haven't read this, I want you to see this kind of and compare it a little bit, Okay. Um, so this is how Genesis begins. Genesis means the beginning. Uh, this is the story of the beginning. In um, the beginning, God. And then things after that. Okay, after him. All right, so in the beginning, God, this is how our Bibles begin, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Now, it's not word for word, but is there anywhere else in all of Israelite history, of all of Jewish history, where somebody else starts saying, in the beginning, God. And they start talking about darkness and light. And they start talking about word or or God manifesting or speaking or, or projecting himself into his creation. No. This wasn't an accident on John's part. In, in roughly five verses, you can go back to, to John, uh, that would be great up there for, for people's reference there. Um, in the first five verses of John, he brings the reader literally from the dawn of time to John the Baptist. From the dawn of time to John the Baptist, John is talking about something cosmic, something eternal. He says the word of God in the beginning, which means before creation, before the cosmos, before the universe or, or 11 of them, parallel universes, or whatever, before, before anything existed, God existed. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you're frustrated by the tension there, welcome to the party. We're going to spend some time this semester exploring this tension between God, or, um, the tension between Jesus being both God and the Son of God. 
between Jesus being both God and the Son of God. The word, which it, it, well, we're going to get to this in a second, right, is, is Jesus. Uh, um, and, and he's talking about as being both God and the Son of God. And how are these reconciled? One or the other may not give us as many problems, but saying both a couple of times gives us a lot of frustration. And we're going to explore that. Jesus uh, doesn't seem to be hiding that kind of language on quite a few accounts, and we're going to get to that in a couple weeks, right? Um, in using this word language, W-O-R-D, right, in the beginning was the word, John is tinkering, the author here is tinkering with some Greek and Jewish thought, okay? For the Greeks, just very briefly, and this is a, a nickel thought for what, what is arguably a million-dollar conversation, okay? But um, John is tinkering with Greek and Jewish thought. Okay, so for the Greeks, the word, um, word, logos in Greek, or logos in Greek, had a variety of meanings, okay? One of those meanings, one of the richest ones, particularly driven from this group called the Stoics, okay, um, was that the word logos represented the very principle of meaning or purpose in the universe, the word was the, was the meaning or purpose behind a thing. It was the reason for existence. It was the thing that gave life and meaning to existence. It, it was so tied into meaning that 300 years before Christ, there was a, a, a Greek Stoic arguing that God and word are the same thing. This was rich. It was used, that word was used for all sorts of other things, like a sentence that came out of a person's mouth. It was a very, very rich word in its culture, okay? John was tinkering with that a little bit here. Is Jesus the Word? Is he, does he transcend and fulfill what Greeks thought the Word was in their culture? Meaning and purpose and for all existence. The very reason, synonymous with God's stuff. For the Jews, the Word was the very means by which God affected creation. When God spoke, the universe was made. In the beginning was God. Right? In the beginning, God, he created the heavens and the earth, and he did it by speaking, we're told. There's something, and in Jewish thought, in Israelite thought, y'all, like, the words that come out of somebody's mouth are so important. It's not just the thing you say. And that wasn't just old, like, Genesis talk. Jesus himself would say that the stuff that comes out of us is, is telling everybody what's inside of us, too. That, that, that it's not what, you know, Whatever. You guys get the point? Words are, are really, really important in Jewish thought. When God wants to communicate himself to his people, he often spoke through prophets. He would give them his words. He would tell them things. He would speak to them. This is how they knew God. And when John says that Jesus is the word, he begins to tinker with and mess with the Jewish thought there too. John is messing with all of this stuff. John says Jesus is the word, and I think it's stunning and clever for him to use such a culturally loaded concept. But he doesn't really buy into anybody else's definition. He kind of does his own thing with it. He uses what is in some ways a throwaway word that has been applied to the reason of the universe, to the Hebrew God, to all sorts of things, and he begins to say this concept, I'm going to get everybody's attention for a little bit, and then I'm going to do something kind of different and kind of new with it. And he goes on to say this word was in the very beginning. He was in the very beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything was made that was made. And a couple of times here, you might have caught it, the word is personal. When John starts talking about the word, he's, it's not an it. It's not just a principle or a meaning or a reason. The word is not an it, it's him. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
And, and friends, how we need to believe that. That the darkness has not won and the darkness cannot win against the light, neither inside nor outside of us. That language that John uses it here is super vague. It's poetic, it, it, it plays well in all sorts of contexts, but it might be worth keeping in mind how Jesus teases out this sort of concept when Jesus starts talking about light. You see, when John wrote this prologue, he was aware of what's coming next. Having lived alongside Jesus and seen the things Jesus taught and the things his apostles taught, he was able to go back through and write a beginning to his story that was, that was going to be like uh, plant the seeds which would flower later in the text. God speaking, Jesus being the word, God and Jesus and the dynamic between the two of them, light and darkness. And then John begins to park the reader in history. And this is where we move. This is that, that, that five-verse sweep from cosmic to local. God eternal to a moment in time. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This is John the Baptist. We're going we're to get into some of this stuff later, but, but what, what John, the author here has just done, because now I'm saying John in two different ways. Um, it may help you to, to know this. In the Gospel of John, the author never refers to himself by name. It's actually the only Gospel account where John the disciple is not mentioned by name. And he does that for arguably a number of reasons, probably some modesty, probably to try to draw attention away from himself in some way, but then he draws a ton to himself later. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, but but it, he also doesn't call John John the Baptist. He just calls him John, but we don't need to know that he's John the Baptist because there's no other John mentioned. Anyway, I'm just saying that because you might be confused if you just heard me use a couple Johns there, okay? But what, what the author of this text does is he moves from before time, before the beginning, in the beginning, from that point preexistent eternal He's moved all the way down to something that just happened a few decades ago to his readers. That somehow the eternal stuff that's going on and God has been involved in a very particular local place, time and date kind of stuff recently. And right after he talks about John, he takes us back to the light, to him, to the cosmic word. He kind of moves down and then moves back up again. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. This is a huge concept that some of us in this room might not, might not at least um, agree with at first blush. Surely our culture doesn't believe this way, but there's an assumption in this text that the world does, is not receptive to Jesus, not receptive to God's involvement and interaction in the world. It's a huge assumption and, and just so you know, and this might come out a bunch as we explore John, when, when, when the Gospel of John uses that word world, it's not like a really positive thing. Like, it's talking about scope and like, it, like over everybody, but, it, but John is usually meaning when he's talking about the world, the world that's resistant to, that's usurping God's authority. The world that's rebelling against God. Which, which in some ways really exalts the love and the magnificence of Christ here. That he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And we're going to keep moving and we're going to see him offer himself to the world. For God, you guys probably know the most famous verse in all the Bible, right? For God so loved the world. And it, for John's readers, that is stunning. That's not a universal love comment. That, that, that's another conversation. That's not what he's getting at here. That's God loved the world which rebelled against him and moved toward them anyway. 
He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. It means Israel. God always moved toward them first. Paul did the same thing, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. And here we have the very center of the passage. And the center is significant. It's the hope, right? To all who did receive the word, who all, all who received that light, to all who received Jesus, who hasn't been mentioned by name yet, but every reader would have known by this point because he just talked about John the Baptist. Intimacy with God is broken open in Christ. To everyone who receives him, he gives them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Notice we're back to the word language again. He sort of swept back here. And the word, this eternal creative light and life, God, becomes flesh. And that word is stark and crazy. I don't know what context you've grown up in exactly. You might think it would be easier to believe in Jesus if he was sitting here among us. I, I'm sure some people in this room think that. And, and that might be true. That if, if Jesus were in the flesh among us, I would have an easier time believing in what he said and who he is. I, I submit to you that it might be a lot harder for some of us to believe. For if he was sitting back over here like in the eighth row, wearing some blue jeans and a husky t-shirt, which I'm sure he would be, speaking English, taking classes, lifting up his hands in worship, laughing with some friends down in the hub and trying to figure out which retreat he's going to sign up for or something like that, because he'd definitely be involved here, right? Uh, and, you know, uh, and then later on going to his dorm, doing some homework, going to bed because he's tired. Gets up in the morning, has to brush his teeth because his breath stinks and takes a shower and puts deodorant on because he sweats and he smells sometimes. Like if, if, if we encountered Jesus that way, I actually think many of us would have a lot of trouble believing because he's a human. He's just there. He's just sitting among us. God? Now, maybe for some of you, you think that would be easier. I think for a lot of us, it would be harder. And John throws this kind of visceral language at us. He doesn't say God became a human. He says God became flesh. That's a word for body. It's unequivocally like, like bone, blood, sinew, that kind of stuff. He's trying to be stark when he says it. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and the word there is literally tabernacle. Tabernacle, which immediately causes the reader to remember the tabernacle for the people of Israel was the place where God lived among his people. That God became flesh and tabernacled among us. He pitched up a tent. He camped among us. And what did God do when he did that before? He dwelt with us. His presence was with us, and he was for us. Here John says that in the flesh, God built a tabernacle. He means God himself is dwelling among us in Jesus, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth. And he goes back to history for a minute in his parenthetical statement, making sure that he's parking the reader, thinking about these abstract concepts and the things that God does. He doesn't want that to get untethered from taste and touch and sight and smell and hearing. He doesn't want us to get lost in theoretical arguments about the nature of the Godhead or something. He wants us to remember that Jesus' feet were digging in the dirt, that he woke and he slept, and that he had height and width and depth. 
Christians, he still does. That's a different conversation, though. Verse 16 says, From his fullness we've all received grace upon grace, and from the law, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. John here states what obviously what he's been hinting at, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all God has been doing up till now. That's there's some crazy stuff there. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And this is where it gets crazy. Try to pick apart the last sentence there. No one has ever seen God, which most of us would go, yep, there's some really asterisk accounts, though, in the Old Testament. The only God who's at the Father's side, so it's back to that sort of beginning Trinity tension stuff, if you know that, the word Trinity, right? Like, so is, is God the Father or is God not the Father because God's been referenced as the Father earlier? The only God, there's only one God, according to John, is it the Father or is it the Son? The only God who's at the Father's side. So now God is at the Father's side. God's not just sending the word of the Son. The only God has made him known. This is wild. Some of your translations say different things. Some of your translations say um, that, that the word Jesus, the, the one at the right hand of the Father, the one sent by God, the one that's light and truth and life, that he explains God to us. I think that's fair. I, I, I think it's taken away some of the mystery. It's taken away some of the heightened relational dynamic that's in this text. This relational dynamic about the word being with and, and the son and the father and us being invited into childness, like childlikeness and, and, and the family business sort of stuff with God. That in the original text, it just says he makes him known. He makes him known. And then right after this, we launch into history. Then it does go to John the Baptist, and it begins a bit of a, something like a chronological account of some history stuff. This is arguably the most loaded passage of Scripture in the entire Bible. This is the only time we're talking about it directly this semester. Uh, from cosmic to particular, from eternal to moment in time, from Moses to Elijah, from Christ's divinity to our being invited into the family is loaded, y'all. And what strikes me here at the end is that this gospel is the answer to the questions that John stirs up in the beginning. That as we read the gospel of John together, as you, as you go through it, if you do, I, please, I encourage you to read the gospel of John with us, with our staff and leadership this semester, with your core group or something like this. It takes about two and a half hours to read straight through. I don't know what the audio version is. You can read it in some chunks if you want. I don't care. But as you read through it, I'm submitting to you that the gospel account of John is an answer to the questions that he stirred up right in the beginning. What does it mean to receive Jesus? Right there in the middle of that prologue, he says, for all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. What does that mean to receive him? And what do we know about God because of him? If Jesus makes God known, what do we know? These are questions which, which I think are being begged in this prologue. And in other gospel accounts, if you read Mark or something like this, you, you might stumble upon Jesus doing something crazy, extraordinary. And people are asking him, and we might ask him even as a reader, who is this man? That's actually a question that comes up in a couple of different gospel accounts. And if you've never heard the story before, and you're just reading it straight through, and you see Jesus standing on water, you see him like sleeping in the bottom of the boat, comfortable in a pillow, which the text says in Luke, that he's literally chilling in a very comfortable spot in the bottom of the boat while everybody's terrified for their life. 
I don't know if you ever feel like God's doing that in your life. I feel like that a lot, okay? Um, and they start freaking out, and he comes up, and he's like, shh, and he goes to sleep. I'm paraphrasing, okay? But, but he does this, and they're freaking out. And they say what any of us would say if that happened, and we didn't already know the end of the story. Who is this dude? Who can do that? But in the Gospel of John, we know right from the beginning who Jesus is. We aren't sort of strung along trying to figure out who he is as he's revealing himself through his works. We, the readers, know from the beginning that Jesus is the pre-existing God, the one by which and through whom all things were made. We know that he is God among us. We know he is light and life of men. And so in next week's passage, when we see him sitting there, God in flesh, at the back of a wedding celebration, and because, we, because of what we know, I think it's really stunning. It's a stunning scene. It's an arresting scene. Jesus, I know all of this about Jesus. And so he's at this like wedding for a week, hanging out. And that's it. And I don't know what you're expecting, but, it, but it's, it's that kind of scene, knowing what you know at the beginning, you're, you're waiting for something to happen. You're not asking who is this man, but no one else there in the story knows who he is, like you, the reader, knows, according to John, right? They don't know who he is. They don't know what we know about him when his mother comes and tells him there's a problem. We're not asking who is this man. We're wondering, how's he going to prove it? If what John said is true, how's he about to prove it? And if he is who he says he is, what is this going to show us about God? Do you see that those are the questions that get begged just from the narrative, just from the text itself? When John begins that way, loading up who Jesus is for us, and then he begins to launch into some narratives of his life. John has begged the questions. He stirred them up. Jesus is God. God has dwelt among us. You want to know who God is? You don't have to guess. And, and it's not just like, let's just sit in a room and talk about it. We got to go look at the calendar and the date and the time and the place and ask questions that have concrete, real things to them. John starts off with that kind of stuff, and it's even better, because then he says, also, you get to be invited to call God Father. I mean, it's crazy stuff. And as you read the story, you're going, prove it. Show me. What do you mean? Those are the questions that are coming up. This semester, I encourage you to wonder with me, is Jesus really the Son of God? And do I believe in him? Is Jesus, as John begins to unfold his stories, as we look at the things Jesus says and does and the way that he is, I'm not trying, this isn't me being passive aggressive, I'm just being aggressive right now. I really want you to ask, do I believe Jesus is the Son of God? Do I believe that when I know Jesus, I know God? And what do we know about God? Those are the kinds of things we're going to be exploring every week. Is if this is true, what do we know about God? Has Jesus demonstrated here his, who he is? In this, that's the kind of stuff we're going to be exploring. It's my prayer, of course, that you believe those things. Because, friends, though there is so much mystery for us in this world, and though there are things which we will likely never know, God is making himself known in Jesus Christ. You can, in fact, know him, even as you're fully known. And to all who receive him, he gives them the right to become the children of God. And somewhere under the crusted and scarred surfaces of our hearts, I know that each and every one of us in this room longs for that. To be received and loved by the Father like we're his cherished children. If you can get below that crusted and scarred surface.
But honestly, I think that's more than often any of us, or maybe many of us, dare to hope because we don't think it could be true. And so instead we settle for losing 10 pounds this year, making a couple better friends, getting a job that doesn't suck. When what God is promising is something so much more than any of us in this room have ever dared ask or imagine. I pray that as we walk together through the gospel of John, we discover that truth and we believe him. And in believing him, like John said he wrote his gospel for, I pray that we find life abundant and everlasting. Let's pray together. Father, immediately even in saying, Father, I am grateful that we have the opportunity to call you that because of Jesus. I pray um, in this new year that you fill our hearts and our minds with possibilities and hopes for things uh, that for many of us we have um, prob probably learned to just ignore, excite our hopes and our desires, and then satisfy them. I pray that your spirit would help us. Your spirit who hides somewhere in those first 18 verses and shows up so much later. Um, May your spirit help us to believe, help us to see. Help us to know that the truth of the universe of who God is and who we are is not inside of us, it's out there. It's at the beginning of time and it's parked a couple thousand years ago in our history and recorded by multiple people. And Lord, I'm so grateful for the accounts. I'm so grateful that you don't hide, that you make yourself known. Help us to know you. May we be a people who believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God and may we have life by believing in his name and then may we tell others. As we worship you now, we worship you um, grateful for offering this kind of life to us, for inviting us to be your sons and daughters and for being worthy of all of this and more. Would you hear our praise with delight and with joy? Um, and, and would you invite everybody in this room um, to receive your son? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There'll be people in the back to pray with you if you want to pray with anybody.